Well, welcome back to the Palm Butte Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. My name is Trey Hinkle. I'm the senior pastor here at Palm Butte Christian Church in beautiful Central Oregon. Although I'm looking out my window today and it's overcast and I can't even see Smith Rock. I usually can on a clear day. Uh, it's just kind of dreary. Um, it's like winter wants to hang on. And uh, this is the week that's going to be the time change as well. So hopefully uh, hopefully we start to get into spring like permanently. That would be a, a nice thing. Anyways, hey, uh, week 46 of our study in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, we're getting down to the nitty gritty. Um, this is the last week of Jesus that we've been looking at and will continue to look at up through uh, Palm Sunday, which we will then uh, be looking at the crucifixion and then, of course, the resurrection on April 9th, uh, which is uh, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. So anyways, that's uh, kind of where we are. Then after that, we'll just have a couple more weeks in our study of the Gospel of Luke. And then uh, for about 10 weeks or so, we're going to be looking at some psalms that I think would be uh, very encouraging for us to to look at and become our um, heart cry, our model for our prayers or our devotionals as well. So Anyway, today we're looking at a passage that's been quite possibly misinterpreted uh, for some time. Uh, Many people that I know who read this passage, they automatically jump to a preconceived notion of what it must mean. And for them, because this is what they've been taught, uh, this is what they have read, this is what they have seen movies on, it must mean that Jesus is talking in this passage, Luke 21, about the end of the world. Now, for the last century and a half— There have been people who have taught that Luke 21 and the parallel passages found in Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel, that they all point to the last days. Now, when you're talking about the last days, that word, by the way, is eschatology, uh, the study of the last days. It comes from the Greek word eschaton, and eschaton means the last or the extreme, like in the last days. Now, what what I find is funny is when I used to live down in California, in the Sacramento area, I would often get into Sacramento, uh, did a lot of errands up there. I was connected with a theater up there. And as I was driving in downtown Sacramento one day, I saw a van uh, that was owned by and advertising a, uh, like a, a, a nursing home facility, uh, an assisted care, uh, assisted living care facility, okay, for, the, uh, for older people, right? And it was called Escaton. And I'm pretty sure that most people don't know that eschaton in the Greek means last or the last days or the extreme part of life. And I just thought that was because I did know that. I thought that was a horrible name (laughs) to or maybe a very appropriate name, but a very horrible name for an assisted living facility uh, for old people. Uh, This is the last days, eschaton. Anyways, What eschatology then, if eschaton means the last or the extreme, then eschatology is the study in Christianity of the last days or the end times. And it's a a popular study. It's become very popular in our world today. It seems like there are scores of books and lots of movies that have come out that all have a certain bent on what the end of the world will be like. And by the way, when you look at the the teachings of Christendom over the last 2,000 years, 2,000 years since Jesus, right? Um, this particular bent 
that uh, we see prevalent in movies and books today really only arose back in the mid-1800s, so almost not even 200 years ago. So one-tenth of the 2,000 years is what we've been getting this. So, so that makes me pause to say that I don't know if I want to jump on that bandwagon automatically. Now, why is it so popular? Because people are curious about the end times. It's natural for people to wonder about things like that. I find that uh, people tend to be morbidly curious. Uh, you know, there's websites out there that you can actually put in your date of birth Put in a few other facts about yourself, and the website will actually crank out the date that you will die. Now, and, and, and what blows me away is people go to that website. Let, let me tell you, I wouldn't. I really don't think I would want to know when I was going to die. Now, some people argue, and they say, yeah, but, you know, if, if it tells you that you're going to die in 30 years, well, then you've got like 27, 28 years before you really have to worry about it. You could just live your life in confidence, right? Well, yeah, sure. But as soon as you're getting close to that date that they gave you, it would be like, it would be like, um, I go back in my mind to my elementary school days where I'd get to school and they would tell us, we're going to have a fire drill today, which means that that alarm that would ring suddenly, which always gave me a heart attack anyway, I hated, I hate jump scares. And so when you all of a sudden heard that, you know, out of nowhere, that already made me scared. But now they're telling me that it's going to happen sometime during the day. They didn't tell me when. Boy, talk about filling a young boy's heart with anxiety. I can't concentrate on anything that day until after that dang fire alarm would go off. Man, I hated, I hated it. So that's what I would think that if you knew the date of your death, that that would be kind of what you would start to live in, that anxiety. But I know people are curious. They want to know. And so when you read passages like Luke 21, then I can see how that can get people's imaginations going to say, is Jesus talking about the last days? Well, here's, here's my take on this. When you read the passage plainly, and I like to read the Bible plainly, and I realize that there's different genres in Scripture, that there's poetry, there's history, um, there's apocalyptic where you do look into the future. But, but when you read this passage plainly, I think that you're going to see something different than just a prediction about the end of the world. In fact, as we actually read through Luke 21, we're going to see a third prediction that Jesus makes. And this third prediction uh, of the, uh, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple is by far the most detailed. Now, before we get into it, I want to, again, look at the context. I think that's so important for us to understand what's going on. Why does Jesus even say this? And so let's read uh, from verses 5 and 6 of chapter 21. It says, While some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, this temple, this beauty of the temple, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Okay? So Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. Now, this comes, by the way, immediately after Jesus had watched a widow 
put in her last two copper coins, the last bit of money that she had, to go into the temple. And she put that into the treasury. And a lot of times people teach that about the generosity of this widow. But if you understand what's going on in that context, in that day, if she wanted to go and worship God in the temple, she was required to bring money. Okay, And here's a widow. A widow who God had always said, I want you to watch after these widows. Take care of them. Don't let them die in poverty, right? Well, here's a temple system that was going to rob this lady of her last two copper coins. And and instead of commending the woman, I think Jesus is more condemning a a system that would actually take those last two copper coins from a widow in order for her to be made right with God. That just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem to be in keeping with the heart of God. And so Jesus comments to say that, yeah, uh, uh, people are giving to the temple out of their wealth. But in contrast, this woman gave more than anybody proportionately because she gave everything out of her poverty. Well, now, but talking about the wealth, that allows people to begin to look at the temple. And to see how much it was adorned with beauty and majesty, these huge marble slabs, the, the, the inlaid with, with uh, precious metals and precious uh, jewels. And so the disciples comment on that. Now, by the way, this was not Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple had been destroyed when Babylon had come through. The Babylonians had taken the Jews into exile and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They destroyed the walls. Uh, And so when the people came back from the 70 years of exile in Babylon, they knew that it was important to rebuild the temple. And so the second temple was was constructed. And and some of the old folks said, man, it didn't look as nice as Solomon's temple. Okay, it wasn't as majestic as the first, but obviously it's still impressive. If in Luke 21, the the people are marveling at, at the buildings, huge marble stones, some over 40 feet long, you know, all of these things. The, the disciples are impressed. And so that's what they say. They're impressed. And yet Jesus replies in a very alarming way. Again, this is the third time he's predicting the destruction of the temple. And, and now this prompts the, the disciples to ask a very specific question. Look at verse 7. Look at the question that they're asking Jesus. Okay, They asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Do you catch what they're asking Jesus? Uh, They're asking Jesus, you just told us that the temple is going to be destroyed. When will that take place? And what are the signs that we might watch for so that we could be prepared for this horrible event? Now, by the way, in Matthew's account, the disciples are so shaken uh, about this prediction of the judgment against Jerusalem and the temple uh, and, and the destruction that they actually thought that that would be the end of the world, right? That uh, when the temple is destroyed, it would mean the end of everything. But I believe that Jesus' response to their question actually grounds them because he tells them, about when and what signs to watch for, but he continues to bring it back to the temple. Okay, he, He's speaking of something that's going to happen within their 
lifetime. Verse 32, if you jump down to 2132, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this generation, the generation that he's talking to, this generation will certainly not pass away until all of these things have happened. Now, some people have tried to do some gymnastics around that, and they believe that maybe Jesus is talking about when all of these uh, signs for the last days begin, that that generation will not die out until the end comes. But I believe that if you're, again, reading this plainly, you can't get around that language. I tell you the truth, this generation, the people that I'm talking to, this generation will not pass away until this, all, of, all of these things have happened. Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about the end of the world. I'm talking about the end of the temple. And there will be signs to indicate that coming reality. And by the way, in, in Matthew 24, when he's uh, answering their question, they had actually added a question. And they did say, and what's going to be the end of the world? And, and he says, as for that time, there's... There's not by there's not much by way of signs. He just says, be ready. He says, of that hour and day, nobody knows. The angels don't know. The Son of God does not know. Only the Father. And so he says in verse 36 of Luke 21, be always on the watch. That seems to be the main thrust of what he wants to teach them. That, yeah, some things are going to happen that are scary, There are going to be some things that happen that you might think are going to be the end of the world. He says, but you, I'm telling you these things so that you can prepare. Be on the watch because it can happen at any time, at any hour. Well, what does he say, though, about the destruction of the temple? Well, that's the bulk of verses, uh, chapter 21, verses 8 through 24. So let's just read through that. There's going to be a lot of things that are that are entailed that we'll kind of uh, pick apart here, but let's just read it through, okay? Jesus said to them in verse 8, See that you are not led astray. See that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Don't go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things first must take place. But the end will not be at once. And then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom for which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth, and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword, and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
Okay. Well, there you go. That's pretty radical. Talking about persecution of God's people and eventually a destruction of the city surrounded by armies that will come in and destroy everybody and and put people to death by the sword and leading others into captivity. And and then he's talking about all of these signs that are going to happen, earthquakes and, and pestilences and famines and all that kind of stuff. So here, I think, is the most important question to ask. What is the heart of this judgment? Obviously, God is judging or going to be judging the city of Jerusalem and the temple. So why? What is at the heart of his judgment that Jesus is predicting? Well, you got to understand what will end when the temple is destroyed. What is no longer going to be reality when the temple is destroyed? Well, (laughs) you're not going to have priests performing their ritual sacrifices anymore in the temple. The temple sacrificial system will be gone, done away with when the temple is destroyed. And by the way, because the temple has never been rebuilt, that temple sacrificial system by the priests there in the temple has never been resurrected. Okay? It's as if Jesus is predicting that the time of the old covenant temple and the old covenant priesthood will come to an end when God judges the city. And indeed, you can actually make the argument to say that the old covenant temple and priesthood came to an end when a new covenant appeared with a new temple and a new priest. Now let's talk a little bit about what the author of the book of Hebrews says about that priest. Okay, uh, Chapter 7 is, is an amazing chapter in the book of Hebrews. Uh, verse 11 says, If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the law was given to the people, then why was there still a need for another priest to come? That's what the author of Hebrews asks. Good question. If you jump to verses 18 and 19 of chapter 7, the author of Hebrews tells us that the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, because the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope then is introduced by which we draw near to God. Okay, Basically saying the, the temple system, the sacrificial system of the temple was weak and useless because it didn't make people perfect. It just allowed them to have their sins pushed aside, right? Until a better hope came. And it's by that hope that we can draw near to God. And then finally, in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 7, the author of Hebrews says, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So he's talking about Jesus being the priest, but he's going to be a priest forever because Jesus lives forever. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Do you see that the author of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is that better priest with a better priestly duty in the new covenant than what ever could have happened in the Old Testament? Now, Jesus talked about a time that uh, the, the true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and truth. He, he told that to the woman at the well. Uh, you know, she asked him about where's the proper place to worship. And he said, well, uh, eventually, uh, true worshipers of God are not going to need a temple 
or a high place. They're, they're going to be able to, to worship him in spirit and in truth. And then now he's talking about the, the day that the temple is going to be destroyed. <laughs> you see, here, here's, the, here's the point. Because, because of the work of Jesus, because of the work of Jesus, the temple is not needed anymore. Okay? In fact, we are told in Paul's writings that we, the church, are God's temple. Okay, that he is building something in us, in his people. We don't need uh, a building made by human hands. Okay, it's going to happen within us. Uh, when Jesus died, our sins were no longer merely just pushed aside like they were in the Old Testament, covered over, but they were really truly removed, separated us as far as east is from the west. We are told. So the the destruction of the temple wasn't just a judgment on the people who rejected the Messiah. It was actually a judgment on a system of sacrifice and forgiveness that was barely adequate at best. It was far inferior to what God was doing in the new covenant. In fact, he uses the Old Testament prophets to look forward to a day where this would happen. He says, I want to write my law on their hearts, not on stone tablets, you know. Because having it on stone tablets, that doesn't change anybody. But if our hearts can change, well, then we don't need the external law because we are now living in obedience and relationship with God through what Jesus has done. And so, really, the destruction of the temple is a judgment upon that old way of doing things. Now, that's why I think Jesus warns them about uh, listening to other messiahs, you know, I am he, or, you know, follow me, because other messiahs might bring other forms of righteousness. And that's why the church in the early days had to fight against heresies like uh, Gnosticism and Docetism that, that brought salvation back to something that they could achieve on their own. That's why the author of Hebrews is railing against um, the Judaizers, where these Hebrew Christians are wondering if they should go back to fulfilling the law in order to be made right with God. That's why today we still fight against the wrong ways of being reconciled to God. This is why the regular study of Scripture for the believer is so vital so that we can protect ourselves from being deceived and led astray to follow other paths to get to God. Jesus is warning them, don't do it. There will be false prophets. But then he also says there's going to be persecution. There's going to be persecution, but don't worry. I'm going to tell you what to say. Some of you might even have to be killed. You know, a lot of times people believe that God's going to take us out of this world before things get really bad. And yet Jesus seems to say, no, people who follow me, people who follow Jesus will be around and bad things will happen. And that's exactly what we see happening in the first century, by the way. The persecution of the Christ followers was horrible, both under the Jews and under the Romans. Okay? So he talks about the, the, the persecution that's going to happen. He talks about the false prophets that will offer false hope. And then he says, but what I want you to do is pay attention. Because there is a war going on. And it's not just a, a physical war. It's a spiritual war. He talks about nation rising against nation. But then he says a kingdom against kingdom. It's almost as if he's bringing in the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. He talks about earthquakes and famines and pestilence. 
and terrors and signs all around the world. All this crazy stuff happening that would uh, betray a conflict that's going on in the heavenlies. But again, he's not talking about the end of the world as much as he is talking about the end of that temple system. Because he says that all of these things will happen within this generation. So the history, again, that we looked at a few weeks ago, the history of this area would eventually see the Roman general Titus come and surround the city. And in 70 AD, they would breach the walls of the city. They would level the city. They would destroy the temple. And again, uh, the Jewish historian Josephus would estimate that about a million Jews would have died in that siege and then the subsequent attack. Now, very interesting. Jesus said, well, look for these signs. Okay, it might interest you in knowing what was going on between when Jesus said this and then in 70 AD when the destruction of the temple occurred. These are historic facts, by the way. So in 61, there's a severe earthquake in Phrygia, which is an area north of Jerusalem. Uh, They would have felt that earthquake in Jerusalem, by the way. In 63, two years later, uh, Mount Vesuvius erupted and it destroyed the city of Pompeii. Um, And there would have been felt the geological um, implications. Uh, The the tremors would have been felt as well. Uh, Maybe even the sky darkening as that ash uh, gets put pushed into the sky, uh, you know, just over there, um, not too far away. I mean, it's kind of like how when Mount St. Helens blew, and you could actually see the ash even that way down where I lived in California. Um, During those years, there were also some great famines that were recorded during the reigns of Claudius and Nero, the the, uh, Roman emperors. Uh, In 66, that's when the war between Rome and the zealots, the Jews, began. And all this happened in their known world between what Jesus is saying now, the prediction, and what happens when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. So obviously, all of these things uh, in the world are happening before 70 AD. There's no reason for us to project into the future that Jesus is talking about something that's going to happen in the 21st century. He's talking about things that will happen within that generation. But then you say, well, what about the signs in heaven? Okay, well, we we see that in verses 25 and 26. You know, signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. Well, here's some interesting facts. Again, historic facts. Josephus, that Jewish historian, would tell us that during the Feast of Unleavened Bread in 66 AD, the temple was suddenly illuminated and enveloped by this magnificent light. The light was so bright that it appeared to be daytime at eight o'clock at night. And this is before, you know, uh, daylight savings time. And it shone for half an hour. It was like it was daylight for half an hour at eight to eight thirty at night. Josephus also tells us that approximately uh, at that same time of the year, there was a star in the night sky that actually looked like a sword. And it seemed to hover over the city of Jerusalem. He also talked about a comet that continued to be seen for the whole year. Now, needless to say, he also said that um, these signs were interpreted by the scribes as, quote, a bad omen for the nation. (laughs) No, duh. No, duh. A sword. (laughs) A sword over the city. Yeah, that might be a, a bad omen. 
So Jesus is, is telling the disciples this stuff is going to be happening. Now, does he want them to be afraid of, of the signs in heaven, afraid of the earthquakes, afraid of the famines, and all of that kind of stuff? No, not really. I mean, Jesus has always told them, trust me, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says, I, I don't want you to be afraid. I'm just telling you this so that you'll pay attention and that you will escape the wrath of God's enemies as they attack the city. Now, by the way, by the way, remember Josephus told us that about a million Jews died when Rome came in and laid siege to the city and then attacked the city. There's also no evidence whatsoever that any Christian died during that time. Why? Well, because Jesus said, when you see this happening, get out of Dodge, leave the city. If you're in the countryside, don't go into the city. Get out into the hills, you know. Uh, in Matthew, he says, pray that it doesn't happen during the wintertime. Um, it's going to be difficult for those who are pregnant, but get out. And guess what? The Christians believed that what Jesus was saying was going to happen within their lifetime. And when they began to happen, they got out of the city. And there is no evidence of a single Christ follower being killed during that horrible time of judgment. So hopefully this all makes sense about what Jesus is really warning them about. But then we come to a, a verse that's kind of hard to interpret. And, and this is where people begin to diverge. And some people say, well, obviously Jesus is talking about a different time that he switches gears and now talks about the end of the world because we get a, a verse that can be interpreted a couple of different ways. So let's look at it. It's verse 27. Jesus is saying that, and then they will see the Son of Man, which, by the way, that's the way that Jesus identifies himself. He's talking about himself, the Son of Man. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Okay. So here, there are definite places in Scripture where clouds represent the glory of God, the Shekinah glory that would fill the temple with a cloud, or the cloud that would cover the Mount Sinai where Moses had gone up to meet with God to receive the law. Okay, so there are definitely places in Scripture where clouds represent the glory of God. But there are also places in Scripture where clouds are just that. They're clouds. They're the, the accumulation of water vapor in the atmosphere. Okay, so <clears throat> we don't know. This could be Jesus talking about his actual return back to the earth on the clouds. Now, why would we think that he's going to come back on a real cloud? Well, as he was ascending into heaven back in the book of Acts, chapter 1, uh, the angel comes down after Jesus uh, disappears. is taken from them on a cloud. And the disciples are looking up with their mouths open, going, Duh. And the angel says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. And again, how did Jesus go? Well, he was taken up and a cloud hid him from their sight. So so when Jesus is talking about you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, he might be meaning a real cloud, just like there was a real cloud there as he was ascending into heaven. And he's talking about his physical return, which did not happen in 70 A.D. It's, it hasn't happened yet. 
It's going to be a future event. And so that's where people think that maybe he's now talking about something in the future. Or, or this verse is talking about um, Jesus is coming in power and God's glory through the Holy Spirit. And what did that happen? Well, that happened at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and descended upon the people. And they began to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the church was born. And you can make then a case that what Jesus is saying here in verse 27 is, you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, is that's when I will begin to reign through my church. People's lives will be changed as they begin to be brought into the kingdom here on earth. Okay, So because sometimes clouds represent the glory of God, he could be talking about not his physical coming, but his coming in power through the church. Now, here's what I'm hoping. Rather than you just leave um, this, this sermon thinking, well, this is what Pastor Trey said, so it's got to be this. Or, uh, no, this is what the, the movie said, so I'm going to believe that. I, listen, there are good people on both sides of this debate. Uh, smart people on both sides of this debate. What I would rather you do is you continue to do your study. Read on both sides. Read scholarships on both sides and then then come to a, an opinion. Not a conclusion, but an opinion. Because somebody else might come along and give you something else to think about. Uh, because truly it could be either way. Now, if it is talking about the physical return of Jesus, then yes, he has switched gears. And he is no longer talking about the destruction of Jerusalem from verse 27 and on. Okay, He might be making the claim that um, uh, just like the disciples in the first century need to be ready, so do the disciples later on need to be ready. And, and I, can, I can understand that. But if it's also the case that Jesus is going to come through power through the church, then uh, we can actually connect that to the judgment of the tenants that we looked at last week in the parable of the tenants, the people who were in charge, but now there's a new sheriff in town and that sheriff, Jesus, is now in charge. And so that also fits in with this whole idea that Jesus has come to be a better priest of a better system than what was set up in the Old Testament. So hopefully you can chew on that, okay? But either way, we can come to the same conclusion, okay? Because whether it's uh, God's judgment on Jerusalem as a foreshadowing of his ultimate judgment on the world, or whether, no, this was just about an isolated event, there is something that we need to have as a takeaway, okay, as how we live our lives, how we follow after God. And that's found in the greatest verse of chapter 21, in my opinion, verse 28. Jesus says, when these things begin to take place, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century, when these things begin to take place, stand up, straighten up, lift your heads, raise your heads. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. Your redemption is drawing near. That's, that's the whole point, is one day, one day, though, though these nations rage against God because they feel like their power is being taken away, we're, we're, you know, when, when people start to follow God, they no longer follow even their religious leaders. When that begins to happen, they rage 
and they may lash out. They may take people captive. They may kill people. But continue to look to God because he will save you. Your redemption is near. You know, there have always been wars. There have always been times in, in, in this world where nation rises against nation and there earthquakes are happening and famines are happening and pestilence is happening. There's always been a level of persecution of God's people throughout the globe, throughout history. And Paul tells us that it's never going to get better. He says it's always going to get worse. Second Timothy 3, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now, many of you hear that and say, that's us. That's where we're living. That's the Western world in the 21st century. And, and, and you would be accurate. But we could go back to the 20s, and people have believed this about their culture in the 20s. Back in the 1800s, they believed that this to be the, uh, about their culture. Back in the 1600s, they believed this about their culture. Back in the 1200s, they believed this about their culture. You, you see... We are on a trajectory where the world continues to rage against the things of God. And it could be scary. But Jesus is saying, listen, I'm even showing you signs to to let you know that I'm in charge. And when you see those things that might make you afraid, I want you to stand up, straighten up, look up, look to God, because he's coming. And even if you die before he comes, die horribly at at the hands of people who are antagonistic towards uh, Jesus and all that he represents, don't fear. Look to God. Your redemption is nigh. Now, by by the way, as Luke ends chapter 21, as Jesus gives that parable of the the fig tree, it's all about, listen, if you're mature enough, you can see the signs, just like you can see the signs of a fig tree. Oh, it's getting ready to sprout. And if it's getting ready to sprout, then there's going to be some fruit there. Just like you can see that, you can see what's going on and just know that the kingdom of God is coming. So here's what I believe is the bottom line. Are you, as a Christ follower, living in preparation for his return, Or are you going to be caught off guard? That's what I believe this is all about. And so let's not focus in on the fact that, oh, Jesus is talking about the end of the world. He was talking about God's judgment upon a system that was not uh, going to bring true righteousness. So we must continue to be focusing in on the system that does bring true righteousness, and that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit into our lives to recreate in us what God wants us to be. Apart from whatever our government does, God asks us to stand, to straighten up, to watch him, and to know that he's in charge and our redemption does draw nigh. 
All right, well, it's a little bit longer of a sermon, uh, but um, just uh, it was important for me to to say, guys, let's not let's not get so focused in on the fact that this is a prediction of the end of the of the world because the end of the world might be within our generation, but it may not be. But it doesn't matter because we will experience all the things that the people in the first century are going to experience. God's wrath is being manifest throughout history. That's what Paul tells us in the book of Romans. And so it does us good to remember that our redemption will draw nigh. God will not forget us. He will remember his covenant with us, the covenant in Jesus's blood, just like he remembered Noah and the covenant that he had given to Noah to protect him from the flood, the destruction of the world the judgment of a people that were um, doing the wrong things and having the wrong heart. Just like he remembered his covenant to Abram, he remembers his covenant with us. So lift up your head. Stand straight. Your redemption draweth nigh. All right. Well, thank you uh, to uh, uh, the the people that make this podcast possible, Lisa Welly, um, for putting it up on the on the uh, platforms and cutting it down, putting music to it, producing it. And uh, then, uh, of course, uh, Steve Pittman, who is now the chairman of our elder board. Uh, but he just has a mind that uh, understands technology, and he uh, allows us to have that uh, capability here in Central Oregon. So thank you, guys, and thank you to you for tuning in each and every week. I, I'd invite you, if you're ever in our area, to come by and see us and let us know that you've been paying attention. Or drop us a line. Uh, you can email me at trey, T-R-E-Y, dot P-B-C-C, at Gmail. And uh, just let me know that you, you're listening and uh, how God is touching your life through the ministry of this, uh, of this congregation here. God bless you. We'll talk to you next week.